I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of Cybersecurity Interviews. This is the last episode in a five-part series on mental health, self-care, and neurodiversity. This will not be the last time I speak about these issues on this podcast. I encourage everyone to take these issues seriously and help remove stigmas and champion differences in the way our brains work. Cybersecurity professionals spend most of their day focused on the health and well-being of the environments in their care. However, the cost of reducing risk and keeping our network safe often comes at the price of our professionals' mental health. Many InfoSec professionals burn out, suffer from anxiety and depression, and turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms, which only further exacerbate underlying psychological and physical health issues. So this is an abridged version of one of my public presentations on mental health. And my goal with this is to alleviate the stigma around mental health and stress the importance of open and frank dialogues about this serious issue impacting our community. I will share my journey, reverse engineer the stigma of mental health in business, and look at ways we can hack mental health in productive and meaningful ways. Let's get started. Also a quick disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. The presentation's information is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All content, including text, graphics, images, information, sound, is only for general information purposes. I make no representation and assume no responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained in or available through this presentation, through the podcast, or any other medium. This is not medical advice. Please speak to your physician before embarking on any treatment plan. And most importantly, never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking medical treatment because of something you heard or saw in this presentation. Also, I do want to warn you that there will be uncomfortable subjects as well as triggers. And so triggers are those things that, to put it mildly, kind of haunt us. And when discussed, can make you feel like you're experiencing past trauma. Sometimes you don't even know why it's happening. I was recently listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast where he was talking about early, early childhood trauma. And I didn't realize how much it was going to affect me. And it made me upset and shaking. And I was crying. I, I was something I couldn't listen to. And I wasn't sure why. And I've talked to people about it in the medical community. And they said, look, there just could be any number of things in your past that triggered something. And it's okay. So it's important that when you do have these feelings, you're under no obligation to sit through this and listen to this if you're starting to feel bad. Please turn it off, walk away, recenter, but don't try to tough it out. I do also want to cover some definitions about mental health, self-care, and neurodiversity. So mental health, according to Health and Human Services, mental health includes our emotional, physical, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make choices. Many factors contribute to mental health problems, including biological factors such as gene or brain chemistry, life experiences such as trauma or abuse, and family history of mental health problems. When we talk about self-care, self-care is any activity we do deliberately, you know, something with intent in order to take care of our mental, emotional, and physical health. These are not passive actions per se, but things we do with intent that are self-initiated and self-controlled. And so neurodiversity is still a relatively new term, at least for me, and I know it's something that's getting more traction in organizations that have 
um, resource groups, which is phenomenal. And I highly encourage you to seek those out with inside your organization or start one if your company doesn't have one. So my definition that I kind of pulled from a few sources is that neurodiversity is the idea that neurological differences such as autism, ADHD, mood, and other functions have historically viewed with a very negative perception, but are in fact the result of normal natural variations in the human genome. This represents a new and fundamentally different way of looking at conditions that were traditionally pathologized. It's a viewpoint that's not universally accepted, although it's increasingly supported by science. Neurodiversity advocates point out that neurodiverse people often have exceptional abilities alongside what society has labeled a quote-unquote weakness. But due to time constraints and not to completely firehose everybody with too much, I'm really only going to focus on mental health and self-care in this talk. And for me, for those who've listened to the podcast, know I have a pretty extensive background in IT cybersecurity, currently a global security advisor at Splunk. I do a lot of CISO stuff, to put it mildly, a lot of security and thought leadership. But my past has really been kind of been a fire jumper, for lack of a better way of describing it. Um, the most kind of relatable character I can put out there and what I have done is the wolf, the character from Pulp Fiction. He's a guy that goes in and solves problems. So usually it's very high pressure, um, sometimes uh, scary situations where people brought me in to kind of be the cooler and make sure things get done. Um, so I'll talk fast, I'll move fast, but I'll get things done in ways that are seemingly calm. And what people don't realize is that I've suffered from anxiety my probably my entire life. You know, probably didn't really realize it until certain points we'll talk about later. Um, but people will look at me and say, I don't understand. How can you have anxiety? You seem so confident. And there's kind of a meme I use in this presentation. It says, you know, do not mask composure for ease. You know, underneath it, there's kind of a monster in the closet. And the more I've talked about this, the realize that I'm, I'm not alone. Um, a lot of people have suffered from anxiety and depression in cybersecurity because of the workforce challenges. And Andrea Lombargo said it well in an interview a few years ago. You know, there's never downtime. It's nonstop and every day is a battle. So, you know, we must be right seemingly all the time. And attackers only get to be right once or a few times if they exploit a series of vulnerabilities. So things like depression, burnout, and even suicide are becoming more common among cybersecurity professionals. And depression is the leading cause of disability in the world following heart disease, according to the World Health Organization. And additionally, people with mental health conditions are the highest risk group for suicide. So, I mean, if you just put that in context, I mean, what we're dealing with is some pretty heavy things that we have to process and work through. Um, and the consequences can be pretty severe. And so recently there was a nominate study from 2019, and this is just for CISOs as an example, and kind of where I've got my head at these days, but it was a global study of cybersecurity professionals. 91% of the CISOs surveyed said they had levels of stress they were suffering were moderate to high. 60% rarely disconnected from their work role. 88% worked more than 40 hours per week, with 27 that worked up to 60 hours. 89% of U.S.-based CISOs have never had a two-week break from their job. And so the challenge is that most of these CISOs feel that they're underappreciated by senior leadership. Almost all feel that a breach was inevitable. But only 60% of their peers, their CEOs in the organization, felt that same level of concern about a breach being inevitable. But a third felt they would lose their job or be written up if there was an actual breach. So if you think about it, there's no surprise there's a high turnover and most don't stay in their jobs for that long. 
um, you know, so when I think about it, in my experience as a CISO and working with security leadership, it generally takes almost 18 months to really start affecting change. So then you have this slow ramp up for over a year. Then around that 18 month mark, you know, maybe a little bit before, things start going well for three to four months. Then burnout sets in. So in under two years, a new CISO comes in with the same misalignment with their leadership. Then they leave again. It becomes this vicious cycle, and you can see why a top-down approach is needed in organizations to address this and certainly other infosec problems, but it really starts with the leadership. So mental health conditions can come in many forms. Um, however, if you think about workplace stress and being put under the gun like this, this is only going to exacerbate underlying conditions or it can even accelerate an onset in acuity. So stress management is a huge root cause for the episodic symptoms of these underlying diseases when they rear their ugly heads. And there's a big problem in our community. You know, what do we do for coping and stress mechanism? You know, often it's alcohol, drugs, you know, look at the strip club receipts that were always flashed all over Twitter from Black Hat events. And it was always this accepted way to have this kind of party scene to blow off steam. But that's not for everybody. And it really can alienate a lot of folks. So Jamie Tomasello was speaking at Black Hat in 2018, talked about the stigma she faced being a recovering alcoholic in a culture that pushes us far too hard and doesn't give us the proper type of coping skills in a community. So if a community, as a community, we've done a piss poor job of helping each other here. And I'm not against going out for drinks, having beer at tap at the office. I mean, anybody who's hung out with me knows I like to have fun. But alcohol should not be our only answer. There's other things you have to do. And like I said, I've, I've been really bad with it personally with my staff and customers at time and just say, screw it, let's just go out for dinner and drinks and instead of looking for other things. Um, but it's like saying, screw it, let's just stall AV and we're good, we're good to go. You know, we only need one control area. And there's no one silver bullet to deal with attackers or our health. We know that's not the truth in our computer networks, but we seem to avoid multifaceted layers approach and maintaining the health of our neural networks. So we need to change that like yesterday. And the challenges that we're facing now and then where we are with Corona, it's been a hard year and a half for all of us. Work, school, loss of routines and schedules. Um, this is the longest I've not traveled in my professional career. I, I miss seeing my friends all over the world. I miss being on stage. I miss doing the Doug show in front of clients and customers and audiences. I, I feel completely off my game. I'm not looking for pity, but to say you're not alone if you're feeling that your life has been upended multiple times per day. I talk to friends and family that are really starting to struggle. And I would do anything for those close to me. But I have to admit, I feel freaking powerless at this time. You know, Right now, I can't sweep in like the wolf and just fix things. And there was one article I read recently about how the coronavirus is impacting people and in, in, in this the kind of mindset it's putting people in. And it said, it's the unrelenting horizonless of a COVID world. Just this feeling that it's never going to end and we can't help each other. And this starts really piling up over time. The long tail effects on this can be devastating. Suicide rates are on the rise and even in my home state of Colorado. It's grim. People are feeling helpless. However, we're helpless, but not hopeless. And so you got to keep that PMA, that positive mental attitude. And there's a really great quote from James Baldwin that I use in the presentation is that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. So yes, even though it feels overwhelming, we have to talk about this. You know, we, we have to address mental health. It cannot be avoided as a topic in cybersecurity any longer. So I make my pledge to the communities to raise aware, awareness and remove the stigmas. 
I certainly do not have all the answers, nor will I pretend to, but I will not be shy to talk about this issue. You know, we are hackers. We can figure out a better path forward together. So Corona aside, which is obviously the kind of elephant in the room that's only exacerbating a lot of these things that we're feeling, we really do need to think about, okay, well, what's the root cause of all this on the profession itself? How do we get here? And if you look at information security, it's an industry that's still relatively new. I kind of look at that as a Frankenstein monster that was brought to life by IT, consulting, operations, legal, compliance, privacy. We have a little bit of an identity crisis as we've entered our teenage years. And with that, I feel we've adopted a lot of good business practices, but also a lot of negative. There's so much pressure to work harder, work longer, tough it out, you know, have this kind of aggression, aggression, aggression attitude. Obviously, I can do well in that. You know, I'm a type A and we'll talk about it and this can come at a cost. But this type of mental construct doesn't work for everybody. The staff I've hired in the past five years have wanted a better work-life balance. I can give them money, titles, glory, but less and less it becomes important to them. So as an industry, I feel we don't have a good answer to these needs. And I have some ideas of what's worked, but they need to be further adopted and tested and kind of peer-reviewed. Also, another factor before I touch on my journey is that lives can be on the line with cyber if you're in certain industries. You know, think about healthcare and everything that's going on now with distribution of vaccines. There's a lot of supply chain risk. You know, when I was in pure IT, I can always blame a bad patch for a down server. Big deal. Bounce it, reset it, take some heat. But a breach, that's not just a technical problem. That means somewhere in the controls, a human did something that allowed a breach to happen. So this is heavy stuff that no one prepares us for. Again, we have to be right all the time or else. And that feeling of that consequence is not fair, healthy, or scalable. And so it's something as an industry we need to change and give people much more breathing room, forgiveness, and guidance on how to get through these types of unrelenting pressures. So I do want to talk about my journey as we end this out. And it's a tough one. It's something that every time I do this talk, I feel exhausted um, by after after I, I give it. It's And it's not something that is very easy to talk about at times. So if I really look back, you know, my first bouts with anxiety started in 1993. I was, I was born in mid-70s and, you know, was definitely that kind of outcast growing up and the music I liked, the sports I liked. You know, I was a little skater punk who didn't fit in well, like comic books, like technology. You know, granted today, that's kind of like the norm with things like Disney Plus and everything else that's out there. But in that time growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was not accepted for the things I liked. It wasn't popular like it is now. So it really kind of had a stress on me because I always felt kind of isolated and away from my peers and other people. So really, it didn't really manifest itself fully until the 90s. Um, I had really, you know, really struggled throughout high school. I had a very small group of friends, but I also felt like I didn't belong there, like I said. And so I was always trying to find other ways to kind of blow off steam or maybe distract myself. And so at this point, you know, we... We had found marijuana at the time, and I didn't didn't know what I was doing with this. I didn't know the risks. Friends were like, oh, here, have this. And, you know, in the the second time I I smoked some marijuana, I had massive panic attacks. Um, It set off something in my synthetic and parasympathetic nervous system I wasn't really prepared for. So if you look at the synthetic nervous system, it kind of prepares the body for the fight or flight response during any potential danger. On the other hand, the parasympathetic nervous system inhibits the body from overworking and then kind of restores the body to a calm and composed state, 
whatever had happened, whatever had triggered at that moment, sent my sympathetic nervous system off kilter. And I couldn't sleep for days. I was having massive just panic attacks, but I didn't know what they were at the time. I thought I was going to die. Parents took me to doctors multiple times over a course of two weeks. And they're like, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong. Like we've done blood work. We can't tell what's going on. Finally, one doctor said, you're having a panic attack. And I'm like, well, what, what's that? He said, yeah, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's flippant to say it was all in my head, but that's kind of what he was getting. It's like, you're, you're having a mental health crisis, not a physical health crisis. You need to address it this way. So at that point we were able to get the, the right type of therapy I needed and um, the doctors to help me. And I, I got myself kind of back on my feet and through therapy and some medication, I was, I was evened out, but it was a scary couple of weeks of not knowing what's going on and constantly having your body tell you you're going to die at any moment. And, you know, setting off just a constant vicious circle of just feeling awful. Um, and there's just no way to describe it, but you know, got through that recovered and throughout the nineties, I started my first computer consulting business. So now at this point, all my friends have gone off to college. I'm kind of alone, um, but doing my business and really, again, continue to feel a little bit out of sorts of where I am in, in the world, but I'm an entrepreneur now. I'm, I'm starting businesses. I'm, I'm doing things. And again, it becomes a really high stress environment of really having to succeed and push myself. And eventually I burned out a couple times, like where it was just to the point where I, I couldn't get out of bed for several days or I couldn't even really function for almost a week at a time uh, because I just had pushed myself far beyond my capabilities of you know, 60, 70, 80 hour, 90s a week traveling all over the place. And my, my body just, you know, put a break to that. So I really didn't understand that. And I was like, well, no, I, I thought I already solved this in the nineties with anxiety and, and your body doesn't quite work that way. I found out you're going to have kind of these, these issues that come back. And so I finally got some more help again on that. And I said, yeah, you need to slow down. Let's get you back on meds again and some cognitive therapy and, you know, talk, what are you trying to push for? And it was really, it was like, well, I have to, I have to succeed. I'm an entrepreneur. And they're like, well, why? I'm like, cause I have to. And in my mind, there wasn't a, there wasn't a reason other than to do that. And that really kind of had me focus too much, too, too heavily, I would say on, on running a business and not having that work-life balance. But you know, I, found that and I found a cadence and I got that going well and things went great for, you know, 10, 12 years until about 2012. Um, we, my, my wife and I have our, our two year old daughter. We're, we're living in New York city and I was really trying to figure out, well, who am I? You know, now I've gone from somebody who's been running my own business on, on the outside for, you know, decades and, now I'm, I'm moving into a role inside of an organization, really trying to struggle with who I was as an employee, a husband, a father. Um, and it was, it was a lot of change within a short period of time that I was really struggling with and really didn't process. And for years, you know, from 2012 to 2015, 16, I really just kind of buried it and didn't understand it. And it was, it was really tough. And went through um, a couple of organizations where I continued to build practices and by all external views, things were successful and I had a happy family and, but I wasn't feeling content. So I really just didn't understand what I was trying to do and who I was. And really around 2016, I, I found some stuff about meditation and other kind of mindfulness and journaling. And that, that really helped. And that really helped me kind of become more aware of where I, I was uh, and stop focusing on, you know, what's going to make me happy and just really being more in the moment and accepting things. And that was all well and good. And we decided, hey, as a family, you know, it's tough living in New York City. 
Um, why we need to move something with, with better schools and more overall stability and less risk factors um, than living in somewhere like New York City. So I decided let's move move out west. And my wife and I came out and visited beautiful Boulder, Colorado. We fell in love with this and figured this is the place we want to go um, and set things in motion. And around that time, so this is now early 2017, we starting to pack and move things out. And two weeks before we were to move to Colorado, we were driving and somebody ran an intersection while she was texting in Brooklyn and hit my side of the car, spun us around two times, just barely meshed crashing into my door, but hit the front fender. So I was okay. I thought at the moment, got out of the car, my daughter's screaming and crying. We're all freaked out. Cops come, you know, it's just a whole to do. We get the cars towed, police reports, get back home, starting to calm down, start packing some more, let that kind of just settle. The next morning I woke up and I couldn't move. Turned out I had blown out a disc in my back. And at the time with all the adrenaline, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. Um, and the next morning with the, the swelling and the pressure had pressed on a nerve in my back. Uh, my foot had what was called drop foot and wasn't really working well. Um, I had basically extreme neurological pain going from the tip of my toe all the way up my back. And I was in, in nonstop 24 hour pain. So at this point I'm, I'm trying to, wrap up business and things I'm doing in New York and, and put on a tough face for that feeling helpless that I can't help my family move to an area where I wanted them to move and, and kind of really certainly encourage it. And now I'm, I'm kind of helpless and just in tons of pain. And I, we finally get out to Colorado and it's, you know, we're, we're getting through it. And within about two weeks, the organization I was working with decided to pull the plug on my business. I said to them, well, Hey, look, I, maybe it wasn't that, that, expressive in the fact that I'm, you know, I just moved out here and, you know, I'm in a ton of pain from this car accident, but you can't just eliminate the entire business unit I built with inside this company. They said, yeah, we just decided for austerity measures, you know, we're, we're really going to focus on other things and want to get rid of the whole cybersecurity division. So they let myself go. Um, several of my friends that, you know, are still friends with, but my employees that I, I treated like family we're, we're all eliminated and calling me going, what do we do now? What do we do now? I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. This is the one thing I didn't see coming. Um, and I said, okay, I'll throw myself into things. So I started trying to figure out, okay, I'll network. That's what I'm good at. I'm a talker. I get out and meet people. I'll go to B-Sides. Denver needs volunteers. So I volunteered with them, found out some things they needed. Again, not really heeding to some of the advice of not pushing myself physically, but I'm starting to move things to get together things like boxes of power supplies and switches and routers to take to B-sides and really jerk my back bad and had a severe re-injury at that point. So what little progress I was making on healing went down the tubes and I was even more pain. Um, and that's when the weight of the world collapsed on me. You know, I'm in nonstop physical pain. I had been avoiding the fact that I was pretty traumatized by what had happened at work. Um, was in a new area, had no friends, and really just felt horrible. And I slowly started to kind of fall into this deeper physical and emotional pain. And so there's a homes run life stress inventory. You can look it up online. But basically it rates the amount of life changes that you have within your life that could uh, have susceptibility to stress-induced health breakdowns. Um, so about... 150 points or less, relatively low, life changes are going to happen. Maybe a move, maybe a death in the family, maybe one or two things, lower scale you can cope with. 
150 to 300 points is a 50% chance of a health breakdown in two years. 300 points or more is an 80% chance of health breakdown in the next two years and, you know, really focuses on people getting getting help. When I do the the rating of that for that time period, I was well over 400, literally off the charts on the type of life stresses and things that were going on. And so there's also a simple mental health pain scale that's used within therapies as well. And so when you get into kind of a severe mode, so this one through 10, but the seven through 10 is progressively worse. So seven being you're avoiding things that take you, that make you more distressed, but will make it worse. So you should definitely seek help. Eight is you can't hide your struggles anymore. You may have issues sleeping, eating, having fun, socializing, work, study. Uh, mental health is affected in most parts of your life. A nine is you're at a critical point. You aren't functioning anymore. You need urgent help. You might be at a self, a risk to yourself or others if left untreated. And 10 is the worst mental and emotional distress possible. You can no longer care for yourself. You can't imagine things getting any worse and contact a crisis line immediately. So I was easily within that eight to 10 scale at any given day for about two months. Um, and it got dark. Things were really bad for me. Um, I, I basically couldn't function. I was just feeling complete pain at every cell in my body in ways I can't even describe. And eventually starts taking its toll and falling into a deeper depression. And there's a passage from William Styron in his 1990 memoir of depression, Darkness Visible, that is probably the closest thing I can relate to how I felt at that time. And the, the quote is, the gray drizzle of horror induced by depression takes on the quality of physical pain. But it's not an immediately identifiable pain like that of a broken limb. It might be more accurate to say that despair, owning to some evil trick played upon the sick brain of the inhabiting psyche, comes to resemble the diabolical discomfort of being imprisoned in a fiercely overheated room. And because no breeze stirs this cauldron, because there is no escape from the smothering confinement, it is entirely natural that the victim begins to think ceaselessly of oblivion. When you're at that level of emotional pain in darkness, you get suicidal thoughts, or at least I did. And I thought, you know, that would be the only way to end my pain. And I remember on Father's Day trying to go out and my mother-in-law and daughter and wife trying to cheer me up. And by, by all means, I'm glad they tried. But I was, I was in so much pain, I just went back to the car and just cried and just didn't want to be anywhere on the world anymore because it was, I was in so much pain and I couldn't even be there for my family. Um, and it was, again, it was a really dark period. So over that time I was able to get help and it was really challenging. It was really crushing that the organization that I did eliminated me, but eliminated all my healthcare benefits. They eliminated any type of severance. They just decided in their mind, well, what's the big deal? And I'm like, you're, you're, the level of impact you're having on my life and my family's life and certainly other people that work for me, it's not just a financial austerity measure. You're, you're doing damages. Um, and I don't think that was really understood and it's not understood in business. You know, we think, okay, hey, look, we got to make these moves for business. Great. But, you know, we don't have the type of healthcare we need in this country where people have readily access, accessibility to mental health care services. We just don't. And trying to go through state-funded things were horrible. 
Uh, the process was horrible. That in itself was depressing. Um, but I eventually found a care provider here in Boulder that deals with high, highly type A personalities like myself that have been through this type of problem before. And he sat me down and through uh, cognitive therapy and other things was able to kind of uh, get me right, right sized. And then within three months, I was kind of back on my feet. But really it was you know, that total of six months, you know, from March until September ish of 2017 felt like six years. It was a horribly dark period. Uh, something I would never wish on anybody, but you know, by talking about these issues, I want people to know one, if you are there, you're not alone Two, there is hope and we're here for you and we'll find a way out together. So things got better. Um, you know, when I, I got to a better place, I, I, you know, got back on my feet. I opened up an office for a company here in Denver and soon had 10 employees and was doing all the kick-ass stuff that I love to do and got to travel and work for big brand name clients again all over the world and it was was back on my feet. But it, you know, comes with ups and down. I mean, this, we're now into 2021 and things aren't always perfect all the time. There's long tails effect of all these things that go back to me, my first anxiety issues with 1993 of just dealing with this. It's like, how do you cope and deal with this? And it's, it's a challenge. So I certainly encourage people to get help because you know, where do we go from here? We have to remove the stigma that mental illness is anything other than an illness. Health is health. Mental health is health. We need to move past the stigma and shame that people feel about their illnesses and differences. This only forces people to self-medicate and not seek professional treatment. Now, we wouldn't tell someone who's diabetic to just suck it up or just smile like we do with people with mental health issues. We wouldn't call them names like insulin baby and, and stigmatize it through language like saying, oh, you're just crazy or whatever it is and putting them down about their, their health issues. So we need to stop treating each other that way. And I bet many people have experiences where they just didn't feel mentally healthy for that day and instead use a physical ailment as an excuse to take a sick day. We need to grow past this. So Why? You know, is it just me being altruistic? Well, hell no, I'm a capitalist. You know, so what if I told you I've consistently looked out for the mental well-being of my staff and it has resulted in people that were happier and therefore better at their jobs? I've had higher employee satisfaction, retention. I've had happier customers and as a result, with more top-line revenues and greater profit margins. Quite simply, when people feel their best, they perform at their best, full stop. Mental health versus business is not a zero-sum game. Everyone can and should win. We have to make it a, a, a fight to make sure that our, our employees, our staff, our friends, our family feel their best. It's only upside for that. And it doesn't cost that much. And the returns on investment are far higher than letting people burn out and get into the worst pots they can. So you know, what are some of the steps we can take? You know, first is talk openly about mental health. Educate yourself and others. Be conscious of your language and what you say about people around mental health. Encourage equality between physical and mental illness. Show compassion for those with mental illness. Choose empowerment over shame. Be honest about treatment. Importantly, call out people when they're being stigmatizing. And this is, you know, a new thing that we're starting to see kind of pop up where everybody's being more aware of our language because we do realize it has impact on people. And for that guy that says, well, everyone's so sensitive these days to them, I say, no, 
people have always been aware of what an asshole you have been. We're just finally letting you know and that it's not okay for you to put down people with your language. And I'm not going to let that happen to myself or others ever again. And finally, don't harbor self-stigma. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. Because as my therapist told me, and it really resonated when he said with this, was pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And again, that's kind of a platitude, a little bit of a flippant thing, but if you think about it, it's true. You know, you're going to have pain and you need to accept that in your life. But the suffering you need to choose to get therapy and help for, and, and we're here to help you get out of that suffering. You don't have to live in that cycle anymore. So there's things you can do. Um, you know, and the things that have worked for me is things like medication. It's fine. You know, I was able to find a medication that worked for me and helped get me level where I needed to be. I've also... Uh, found and through my therapist started using acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. So ACT is an action-oriented approach to psychotherapy that stems from traditional behavior therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. People learn to stop avoiding, denying, and struggling with their inner emotions and instead accept that these are deeper feelings, um, they're appropriate responses to certain situations that should not prevent them from moving forward in their lives. With this understanding, people begin to accept their issues and hardships and commit to making necessary changes in their behavior, regardless of what's going on in their lives and how they feel about it. So it's this real real idea and it works well for me, again, because of my <laughs> my type A personality of these things are going to happen. You need to accept it, be the cooler to yourself, move forward, find things that are going to work. And so sometimes it's just setting up certain routines or daily habits. And I found those to be extremely helpful. So things like reducing alert fatigue, you know, explicit deny everything. I have all the alerts are turned off my phone. I don't see things unless I go check them. I set specific SLAs that if somebody's trying to get a hold of me, they know they can call me or text me if it's a, an emergency. But if it's something that, you know, they might not need a response for a couple hours or a day, email's fine or Slack or other things where you got to get out of this, this idea that you're constantly available for everybody and setting those boundaries. And setting schedules so you're not multitasking. You know, focus on deep work. Maybe set some times when you do respond to messages for an hour here, an hour there. But then the rest of the time, you're not trying to do 10 things at once. And you're only focusing on one thing. Um, I've also done things like morning routines. You know, so before I get up, before I touch any technology, I'll, I'll do some meditation through the Headspace app. I'll do journaling through the five-minute journal, you know, just to set some gratitude and self-awareness of where I am before I start touching that tech and getting too deep into the workday. I'm also very conscious now about even things like diet and hydration, just making yourself feel better um, and, and setting some of those limits really kind of helps balance out everything else. You know, you are what you eat and how you think. Sleep is incredibly important, at least for me. I find that I need to set specific sleep routines by going to bed at a certain time, getting up at a certain time, um, and it really has has helped. And certainly, like I said, you know, we I I'm not you know against drinking or having fun with that, but you know, you need to take breaks every now and then. I recommend people do months off where they're dry and, and just you know maybe less. Some level of abstinence and moderation is good in your life. It should not be your go-to. You know, find other things to do. And I found the most important thing that I've done has been overall more accepting of who I am, that I'm not perfect, and focusing on being in the moment. This is who I am. And just because I have to be that 
wolf in many situations and go in and fix everything. I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to fix myself. And my therapist said, Doug, you're never going to be perfect. You know, accept who you are. Stop trying to fix every little thing because you're obsessing about it. You're, you're trying to tweak things that only you care about, quite frankly, and step back and look at the bigger picture. And so that's been incredibly helpful for me, just accepting my flaws and who I am. And quite frankly, I've been a much happier person because of that. So as I close this out, I do want to leave you all with, with some thoughts. And not only be kind with yourself, but be kind with others. You never know what, el- what someone else is going through. So be kind. Forgive yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be vulnerable. Um, it's like addressing challenging areas and blind spots in our networks is how we improve our security programs, right? You know, do the same with yourself. Know that they're there. Find ways to control it. Find ways to heal. <laughs> but be kind to yourself because you owe it to yourself. You're that important. I guarantee you all you all should spend more time caring for yourself. One of the things that you can do too is again, just be kind to others. You know, slow your roll with them. You can't control other people in most situations. You can only choose how you choose to respond to these people. Give everybody a little breathing room right now. We're, we're in a tough, tough part of our, our story arcs. And the best piece of advice Warren Buffett ever got was from Thomas Murphy. And he said, you know, Warren, you can always tell someone to go to hell tomorrow. And as Warren said, that was such an easy way of putting it. You you haven't missed the opportunity. Just forget about it for one day. If you feel the same way tomorrow, tell them the hell to go then. But don't spout things off in a moment of anger. We do incident response, not incident reaction for a reason. Reacting tends to come out of emotion and doing things that are maybe not as controlled as they should be. Response is a more measured way of responding to something. So take the time to do that instead of just jumping off on somebody. And finally, choose to make time for your wellness or you'll be forced to make time for your illness. Spend some time on researching self-care and mental health. If you feel that you, you need help, please reach out. Get it. It can't hurt. <laughs> it's probably only going to do something better for you. Um, so I, I strongly encourage people getting health checks for their mental health just as they would for their physical. There, to me, there's no difference. So I also want to give everybody a bit of a challenge. If you're a listener, it's the five good things challenge. When you go to bed tonight, take out a pad of paper and a pen, put the phone away somewhere else. And the first thing I want you to do is wake up is not touch the phone. Take that pad and paper, maybe go get your coffee, go sit somewhere and write down five good things about yourself before you start your day tomorrow. It sounds easier than it is, but you have to really kind of force to, to accept yourself. And so I, I encourage you all to take that challenge. And thank you so much for listening to my journey. Um, I give a more extended talk in several places throughout the year that gets into a little bit more of the self-care stuff. Please feel free to reach out to me about anything you've heard on this. I'd, I'd love to get feedback. But again, thank you all and support each other in the community. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.